Well, I would invite you to open your Bible to Joshua chapter 1. Follow along as I read Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore, arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Every place which, on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, and all the land of the Hittites, and as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun, will be your territory." No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous." Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. The title of this message is, He is with us. He is with us. I cannot tell you how encouraging it has been for us Uh, both our own family, and I'm sure this is true of the other elders as well, that we've received uh, encouragement from so many of you. We've gotten uh, texts, cards, uh, emails just telling us that you are praying for us, and we desperately need your prayers because we need the wisdom from above that is pure, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, unwavering, and without hypocrisy, as it says in James 3. I don't know what your church experience has been and whether you've been through a pastoral transition before. Uh, I've been uh, in churches and been closely associated with churches that have gone through that kind of a process. And in some cases, it's gone very well. In other cases, it's gone rather poorly. I've seen churches hire good, godly, gifted men who have been faithful to the task for many years. And I've seen churches hire ungodly men who did not last long. Can we just openly confess that while we affirm our trust in the Lord, there is some uncertainty in us about what will happen in our church? Can we just be honest about our feelings? That as much as we are praying, and you are praying, and we're all trusting in the Lord, there are still questions that linger in each of our minds. Questions like, what's going to happen? Will people leave the church? 
Who will then be the next pastor? How will things change? How long will it take to hire him? Will we like him? How similar or different will he be from Pastor Leek? How will he lead the church? And many other questions might be on your mind. Well, I chose this text for today not because it answers our questions, but because it gives us the truths that we need regardless of what, those questions, what the answers to those questions turn out to be. When we come to a text like this that bears so much similarity to our circumstances, one of the temptations that we face is to put ourselves into the text and create a, a one-to-one correspondence between ourselves and the situation in the text. For example, some might look at this text and say, well, clearly Moses is Pastor Leek, and uh, Israel is Hope Bible Church, and the land of Canaan is our future, and Joshua is, well, we don't, we don't know who Joshua is, and so therefore, whatever the Lord says to Joshua here, that's exactly what He's saying to us today. But if we were to read the text that way, that would be in a, a practice of bad hermeneutics, right? Hermeneutics, if you've taken the GBI class, uh, Master's Bible Institute class, is the science of Bible interpretation. It's the rules that you follow to take the words on the page and create and understand, pull out the meaning of those words. Superimposing yourself onto the text is bad hermeneutics. It's a bad way to interpret Scripture. That method really makes Scripture about you, not about God. Instead, what we ought to do and what we will do today is look at the text, study what the text means in its historical context, and then take those truths to consider what the implications are for us today. Are there striking similarities between the situation in the passage here and our own? Yes, of course. That's one reason why it's helpful to study a passage like this. But I will tell you, the most significant similarity between the situation that Joshua was facing and the situation that we are facing is God. His God is our God. And He hasn't changed. Just as He was back then, so He is today. And it's in that connection of having the same God that we will receive encouragement today. We're going to walk through this passage under two headings, and then we're going to consider the implications for us in light of these truths. First, we're going to consider four encouraging promises, four encouraging promises. And second, we're going to consider two necessary responses, two necessary responses. And finally, we'll consider four implications for us today. As you look at the text, you can see that the entirety of this text is a word from the Lord to Joshua. This is a monologue, not a dialogue. The Lord comes to Joshua, and He doesn't have anything new to say. If, if you were paying attention during our Scripture reading earlier, and then when I read this text, it all is the same as what the Lord has said before. In fact, what the Lord tells Joshua is what Joshua heard from Moses and what Joshua also heard from the Lord Himself back in Deuteronomy 31. So the question we can ask is, why did the Lord feel the need to repeat Himself to Joshua at this time? Well, I think it's very simple. There's a vast difference between being commissioned to do a task and then being faced with the task itself. Uh, 
By way of example, Jesus lived 33 years on this, this earth knowing what was ahead of Him, knowing that He was walking toward the cross. But it wasn't until the night before that out of weakness He fell on His face in the garden, prostrated Himself before the Lord, and sweat drops of blood. It was one thing to have Moses standing right next to you and to hear that you're going to be the next leader, but it's an entirely different matter to be the next leader and not have Moses there to consult with. I think it's helpful to try to grasp the uncertainty that Joshua and all Israel must have felt at this moment. If you think back to when Israel was In Egypt, Moses and Aaron came onto the scene after many decades, maybe even centuries, when Israel had been oppressed by the Egyptians. And they witnessed Moses do signs and miracles that ultimately resulted in them being kicked out of the land, let go, redeemed, rescued from that oppression of the Egyptians. They saw Moses lift up his staff and the Red Sea split in two. And they walked through on dry land. And then on the other side, they saw him lift his staff again, and the Red Sea came back on the Egyptians and destroyed the army. As they wandered through the desert and the wilderness, they experienced Moses perform multiple miracles that provided them with food and water. He would strike the rock, and water would come out. He would pray to the Lord, and an abundance, a superabundance of birds would, would land, and they would have meat coming out of their teeth. They heard Moses teach the law of God, which established them as a distinct nation. Whenever the people had disputes amongst themselves, they would go to Moses and he would be their counselor. Moses had ongoing personal interaction with the Lord. He was their representative, and every time he was with the Lord, he would come out of that tent with his face shining so much that he had to wear a veil because it scared the people. But they knew They knew that Moses was an intercessor for them. They knew that because of their own rebellion, their constant complaining, the Lord at various times said, that's it, I'm done with you, I'm going to start over with Moses. And Moses stood between them and the Lord and convinced the Lord to have more patience. Yes, the Lord was their God, but Moses was their leader. From their vantage point, Moses rescued them from Egypt provided for them, taught them, counseled them, judged their disputes, even saved them from God's righteous anger. And while it's true that Joshua was always there at Moses' side as his assistant, Moses was the man. He was the prophet. He was the leader. But now he's gone. Everyone knew the task ahead of them. They were to go into the land and dispossess its inhabitants But without Moses at the helm, everyone, including Joshua, must have had some measure of fear and uncertainty. What kind of a leader will Joshua be? Will the Lord be with Joshua as he was with Moses? I mean, he said so, but will he really? The task that Israel refused when Moses, the miracle worker, was with them, that is, going into the land 40 years earlier, now they are to do with an untested leader. There had to be some level of anxiety and hesitation. So I would note here the compassion of the Lord. 
rather than scolding Israel or Joshua, rather than telling them, come on, I've told you so many times, why won't you believe me? No, he just reminds them once and again, and three times, and four times, as many times as he needs, he, prom- he reiterates his promises to them. He encourages them. So consider these four promises that God makes to Joshua. Four encouraging promises. The first promise is that God promises to give them the land. You see that in verses 2 to 4. Read that. Uh, follow along with me. Moses, my servant, is dead, the Lord says. Now arise, therefore, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as I have spoken to Moses." From the wilderness of this, and this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun, will be your territory. Notice that the Lord does not tell Joshua and the people to take the land. He doesn't tell them to conquer the people. He doesn't tell them to establish a nation worthy of their God. Notice what he says there in verse 3, I am giving it to them. And then he says again in verse 4, I have given it to them. The emphasis is not on what Joshua and the people are supposed to do. The emphasis is on what God has already done and is doing. This promise we know goes back to Abram in Genesis 12 where the Lord came to Abram and said, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, I will bless you, I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you and curse those, and those who, one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. As you continue to read through the book of Genesis, the Lord reiterates this promise multiple times to Abram, and of course when he gets to the land, he says, this is the land I'm going to give you. The Lord then reiterates this promise to Jacob, Abraham's grandson, saying, in Genesis 28, 13, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Toward the end of his life, when Jacob hesitated going to Egypt because of the famine, yet he knew this is the promised land, I shouldn't leave the promised land, the Lord came to him again and said, I am the God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. For I will make you a great nation there, and I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again, and Joseph will close your eyes. When God commissioned Moses to go to Egypt, part of the message he was to tell the leaders of Israel was this, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite to a land flowing with milk and honey. There are many more repetitions of of God giving this promise to His people. He really reiterated this promise to every leader and every generation of Israel to tell them this is not a hope of some of your leaders. This is not a desire that some ancient ancestor had. This is a long-standing and perpetual promise of Yahweh, their God. And after centuries of this promise being future-oriented, I will give you this land. Now the Lord says in verse 4, I have given you this land. The papers have been signed. 
A payment's been made, and now it belongs to you. All you need to do is walk in and evict the squatters. Well, if you put yourself in Joseph's shoes, you can imagine yourself thinking, okay, Lord, that's wonderful, that's great, this, this land is ours, but uh, there's a lot of people in there, and some of them are kind of big. What if we can't overpower them all? Well, that leads to the second promise God gives. Promise number two is God promises to ensure their victory. Look at verse 5. God promises to ensure their victory. The Lord says, no man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. God did not merely give Israel divine right to the land and then leave Israel entirely and leave it entirely up to Israel to figure out how to remove its inhabitants. Now he promised that he would render their enemies powerless. No matter their physical size, no matter their weaponry, no matter their number, no matter their fortresses, God guaranteed that no one would be able to resist Israel's advance and stop them from taking the land. Remember, the first time Israel stood at the border of the land, they sent 12 spies. Remember, 10 said no, 2 said go. Part of their report said this, the people who live in the land are strong And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there, and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. There also we saw the Nephilim, and we became like grasshoppers in our own sights, and so we were in their sight. Well, now, 40 years later, that report is still valid. That information is still true. It's an accurate analysis. Nothing has changed in terms of the occupants of the land and their size. David and Goliath is probably one of the most well-known underdog stories, right? This young teenage boy defeats this massive, battle-hardened giant. Goliath was one of the last descendants of Anak. Hundreds of years before Goliath and David battled, Israel was about to enter the land and face armies of Goliaths. Well, not only were there giants in the land, but there were also well-fortified cities. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, the, Israel, uh, the people of Israel expressed their anxiety about this prospect of going into the land, and they said, the cities are large and fortified into heaven. Now, surely that's a fear-driven exaggeration, but humanly speaking, it's a valid point. After all, how is Israel going to defeat their enemies if they can all hide behind walls in cities like Jericho? From a human perspective, Israel faced a truly impossible task to conquer its inhabitants. But that's not the situation the Lord left them in. He promised to ensure their victory. But how could they be assured of victory, aside from God just saying that? Why could they be confident that the inhabitants and the cities would just fall before them? That's the third promise. Promise number one, God promised to give them the land. Promise number two, God promised to ensure their victory. Promise number three, God promises His presence. God promises His presence. Look at the next phrase there in verse 5. 
just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. And then look at the end of verse 9. Be strong and courageous, do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Joshua and all Israel could be confident in victory because God promised to be with them. God was not staying behind on the eastern shores of the Jordan. The Lord wasn't sending them off and then Himself going on vacation after you know, getting tired of sustaining His people for 40 years in the wilderness. Notice that this promise of His presence and His going with them was unprompted by a request on Joshua's part. I say that because in Exodus 33, when it was time for Israel to leave Mount Sinai, the Lord commanded them to go and head toward the land, and He said, I will send my angel before you to lead the way, but I myself will not go with you. He said, I will not go up in your midst because you are an obstinate people, and I might destroy you on the way. In other words, God was sending a lesser being, one that was powerful to be sure, but someone other than Himself. Well, when they heard that, Israel's collective response was that they went into mourning. They couldn't handle the idea that God would not go with them. The God who rescued them from Egypt, who performed all of those signs and wonders, wouldn't be with them. So Moses appealed to God and begged him to go with them, and he did. But now, as they stand on the edge of the land, once again, the Lord doesn't even entertain the thought of not going with them. He promises His abiding presence. He says, in the same way that I have been with Moses, I will be with you. Now, in my estimation, of all that the Lord promises to Joshua here, I think this is the most significant I say that in part because of the four promises, it's the only one that's repeated as we saw in verse 9. And one could make the case that the fourth promise that we'll look at in a minute is really a a sub-promise, a repetition with more information. But also, I believe it's the most significant because it's the one that resonates with Joshua's experience, and thus it has the greatest impact on him. If you look back at verse 1, It says, now it came about after the death of Joshua, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant. It identifies Moses as the servant of the Lord and identifies Joshua as the servant of Moses. This is one of those instances where the New American Standard Bible It does not help us see what the author of Joshua wants us to see, namely that there is a significant difference between Moses' relationship with God and Joshua's relationship with Moses. The title, the servant of the Lord, that is given to Moses there is actually a rare title that's only given to a small number of men in Scripture, men like Abraham and Moses and David. The word servant there literally means slave. And so these men were God's slaves. They were vessels that God used to accomplish His purposes. But the word used for Joshua's relationship with Moses is better translated attendant or aid or assistant. Those of you who have an ESV would would see that. So you might say that Joshua was Moses' executive assistant. 
And what that means is that for over 40 years, Joshua followed Moses wherever he went. He was always on Moses' heels, except when Moses went into the tent to be in the presence of the Lord. Joshua saw everything Moses did. He heard everything Moses said. He witnessed how the Lord empowered Moses to lead the nation far beyond Moses' natural abilities and even overcoming Moses' weaknesses. Perhaps the two had some private conversations where Moses was honest about his own personal inadequacies and expressed amazement at God's power and presence. Numbers 12 verse 3 says, Now the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. I mean, can you just imagine lifting up your staff and having a sea divide in two, thinking, how on earth did that happen? (laughs) I know that wasn't me. Moses had no misconception about who was leading the nation, who was providing for the people, who was protecting them. He took no glory for himself. He likely told Joshua constantly how God was the cause of all the, the good that Moses did. And now that Moses, yeah, Moses is gone, Joshua is no doubt fully aware of his own personal inadequacies and weaknesses. But God has commissioned him. And like Moses, he commissioned him not on the basis of his strength, but despite them. God promises here to Joshua, in the same way that I overcame Moses' frailties and weaknesses and accomplished remarkable things, so I will do with you, Joshua. Well, not only does God promise His presence, but additionally, the fourth promise that the Lord makes to Joshua is this, God promises His faithfulness. God promises His faithfulness. Look at the end of verse 5. The Lord says, I will not fail you or forsake you. This certainly overlaps with the promise of God's presence, but this promise goes further to say that as God goes with them, He will not change His mind. He won't get halfway through the land with them and then abandon them. Again, Joshua knew of those times when God almost broke out in anger and destroyed the nation and and started over with Moses because of their disobedience. He knew the people were rebellious, and on multiple occasions, uh, God almost uh, destroyed the whole nation except for Moses. But here, God promises in advance that He won't do that again. He won't even think that. He won't give up on His people despite their sin. He won't abandon them despite their rebellion. He won't reject them. The word fail here carries the idea of something that fails due to wear and tear, like a sword that breaks after the thousandth strike or the arm that goes limp after swinging that sword a thousand times. God is not a man that He gets tired. He never drags His feet. He never gets lazy. The string of His bow never goes slack, and the edge of His sword never grows dull. He never has to fight sleep as he stands in the night watches, and he never has to drink coffee to wake up in the morning. God's strength and power and energy is steady. He never wears out, and he won't wear down. 
The word forsake means just that, to leave, to abandon, to walk away. God does not give up on His people. Even after they have whined and complained and rebelled against Him time and time again, He never gets fed up and walks away. Joshua knew this about the Lord. He was there again 40 years ago as they were standing at the border of the land and the people refused to enter the land. It was Joshua himself and Caleb who stood alone and told the people, the land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land, and the Lord is pleased with us. Excuse me, if the Lord is pleased with us, then He will bring us into the land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. What did they get for standing up for the Lord? The people were about to stone them. And Joshua witnessed the Lord show up and scare the people so that they didn't kill Joshua and Caleb. Even when the land was within their grasp and the Lord was ready to give it to them, the people that had personally witnessed all the miracles that God had done did not believe that the Lord would give them the victory. But the Lord did not abandon them. He disciplined them, but He did not walk away. Now, 40 years later, as they were about to enter the land, the Lord assures Joshua once again, just as I didn't abandon you then, I won't abandon you now. These are four incredible promises by the Lord. I have given you the land. Your enemies don't stand a chance. I will be with you, and I will not fail you or abandon you. Faced with the daunting task of being the new leader of well over a million people to lead them into a land fully occupied by multiple strong nations, the Lord doesn't give them new and shiny weapons He doesn't give them advanced technology. He doesn't give Joshua a detailed war strategy or battle plans for every city they're going to face. He gives Joshua and the nation himself. At the end of the book of Joshua, the author ascribes to Joshua that rare title, the servant of the Lord. He did indeed serve the Lord. But here at the beginning of the book, at the beginning of their conquest, the Lord offers Himself not to serve the people, but to be their helper. And with the Lord as their helper, they had nothing to fear. In Hebrews 13, we find this promise, this very promise quoted or written here in Joshua, quoted in Hebrews 13, promise of God's presence. Verse 5 of Hebrews 13 says this, Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. That's a quote of Joshua 5, excuse me, 1-5. The author of Hebrews goes on to say, So that we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid What can man do to me? That last part he quotes from Psalm 118. What the author of Hebrews does is he connects the reality of God's promised presence that when God's people embrace that promise, 
It drives out all fear. Those are the four promises that God makes to Joshua. And driving out fear is not the only result of God's presence. There are two necessary responses that the Lord demands of Joshua. These are not prerequisites to receive God's blessing as much as they are the proper responses to God's promises. Being the sinners that we are, we might be tempted to think, hey, if, if God's already done this, if He's already given us the land, if these enemies don't stand a chance, the Lord's already going to fight and win our battles for us, then let's just hang back and chill. Let's eat, drink, and be merry, and let, you all, let God do all the work. Let's let go and let God. But that's not the right responses to God's promises. Warren Wiersbe says, God's promises are prods, not pillows. God's promises should move us to action. And that's what God commands here. The first necessary response to God's promises is be strong and courageous. If you want to try and figure out how I got that out of this text, just look at verse 6. Be strong and courageous. Look again at verse 7. Only be strong and very courageous. Look again at verse 9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Now, these commands are what this passage is known for. Perhaps when you saw the text, Joshua 1, or you heard me say that that's where we're going, maybe you thought, oh yeah, that's where it says be strong and courageous. But I hope by now you're seeing that the emphasis of what God says to Joshua is not what Joshua must do, but what God has promised to do. These commands are simply how we should respond to God's promises. Joshua here is commanded to muster up his strength and resolve to follow the Lord. These two different words in the Hebrew translated be strong and courageous are virtual synonyms. The first word is the more common word you'll find throughout the Hebrew Bible. It refers to repairing or strengthening a house or doors, or a wall. It's used of strengthening one's convictions and of firming up one's intent. It also speaks of encouraging someone and giving strength to their soul as well as to physical strength. The second word, translated courageous, is used in almost all the same ways. In fact, the only time that it's translated as courageous is when it's paired up with the first word, which is about 12 times in the Hebrew Bible. When the two are used together, they form an idiom, a figure of speech, much like the command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is an idiom that means love the Lord your God with everything that you are. When these words are put together, it means strengthen not only your body, but also your soul. Get yourself together and get ready to move out with determination. Joshua is told here to be resolute in his demeanor, to not shrink back, but to show full confidence in the Lord. I find it interesting as we've read that Moses said this to Joshua in, 30, in uh, Deuteronomy 31. 
And the Lord said this to Joshua in Deuteronomy 31. And here, in these first nine verses, the Lord says it three times to Joshua. And then, in verse 18 of chapter 1, the nation of Israel says it to Joshua. Just look at verse 18. The nation is speaking to Joshua, and they say, Anyone who rebels against your command and does not obey your words and all that you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. Now, we're not told anything about Joshua's state of mind, but apparently it was such that he needed to hear this six times from three different sources, four of those times being from the Almighty God. The Lord's promises were to prod Joshua and the people to gird themselves up and prepare for battle. The second necessary response, we could word it this way, Walk closely with God. Walk closely with God. Look at verses 7 and 8. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night." So, you may be care- so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. As I said before, Joshua did, or the Lord did not give Joshua a battle plan. He did not hand him a war strategy. Instead, he reminded him of the law that explains how it is that the people should live as the people of Yahweh. The book of the law explains who God is, what His character is like, what He's done, what are His standards of right and wrong. It teaches how to know and how to worship God. It teaches how to function in the family and in in the community. It teaches us how to love God and love our neighbor. More important than knowing the future was knowing the mind of God, and that is revealed in the book of the law. The law of God was not to be treated as the personal opinions of the predecessor. They were to be be treasured as the precious jewel of wisdom from God Himself. Deuteronomy 29.29 is a, a verse worth memorizing. It says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe the, all the words of this law. There is so much in life that we don't know that God doesn't tell us, but there is a sufficient truth in His Word that He does tell us so that we would live according to it. The only way for Joshua to walk closely with God was to keep this law in his mind, on his mouth, all the time. Knowing, thinking about, speaking about, and obeying God is how, we would, how Joshua would be able to walk step in step with the Lord. And that is, what, as the Lord says, the only way to ensure success. The moment that Joshua and the people would walk away from the Lord is the moment that everything would crumble. Not because God would abandon them, but because when you abandon God, you tear the fabric of the created order, which always results in disaster. The prosperity and success the Lord promises here is 
not earthly wealth, but as one commentator put it, succeeding in proper endeavors. In other words, if you walk with God, you will accomplish what you set out to do in the name of the Lord. God's promises of His presence and help to Joshua and Israel were to prod them to stay close to the Lord, to see the world through His eyes, to imitate His character, and in so doing, they would ensure their success. If you look at verse 4, you see the description there of the land that the Lord tells Joshua that He is giving to them, that He has given to them. You know, it's not until the time of Solomon that the land of Israel that they had conquered approximates what God has promised them here. And the reason they did not conquer all of that land is not because the Lord's promises failed, but because they did not follow the Lord as they should have. Joshua 21 verse 45 says, not one, not one, not a single of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. And that's true. God upheld upheld all of His promises. It was Israel who failed to walk closely with the Lord. It was Israel who did not fully believe and trust in the Lord, and thus they did not conquer all of the land that the Lord had given to them. Well, as Joshua looks over the promised land, these are the words that ring in his ears. These are the truths that the Lord knew Joshua needed to strengthen himself and to move forward with confidence. Joshua needed to be reminded of the promises of God, and he needed to be reminded that there is nothing more important than walking closely with the Lord. Well, with the remaining time that I have, I want to consider with you four implications that this text has for us today in the place that God has us. These are not applications as such, but really implications that we can draw out of this text and out of their situation. Implication number one is that Christ is the explanation of Hope Bible Church. Christ is the explanation of Hope Bible Church. If you were to travel back in time and ask Joshua as he stood there on the banks of the Jordan, hey Joshua, how do you explain all of this? How Did this nation come out of Egypt? How did they wander in the wilderness and come to this place? How did they establish an identity and a system of worship, create a civil government, and win the battles when all they had been had been slaves for many, many years? Joshua would not have said, oh, that's easy. We had a really good leader. Moses was so smart. And so creative. He was a charismatic leader. People loved to hear him talk. He, out of his wisdom, invented all of the laws and the systems that we follow. Man, I just don't know how we're going to make it without Moses. No, what he would have said was something like this. The only explanation is God. God rescued us. God kept our nation intact. God gave us laws. He saved us from our enemies. Moses was a humble servant that the Lord used, but it was all the Lord's doing. Well, I would submit to you that the same is true of Hope Bible Church. 
Out of his abundance of grace, the Lord used Pastor Tom Leake as the principal leader of this church from its inception until now. No doubt there are many aspects of the church, like any church, that reflect the personal passions and convictions and vision of its pastor. But Tom Leake is not the explanation for how and why hundreds of people from disparate backgrounds and cultures and ethnicities and ages and occupations and interests gathered week after week to worship. He was humble and a loving shepherd and a good leader, but the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who spilled his blood to save us. Jesus Christ is the one who binds us together with one spirit that indwells us. Jesus Christ is the one who promised to build his church. It's the word of Christ that we proclaim. It's the songs of Christ that we sing. It's the good news of Christ that we proclaim. Tom did what he did because he was a slave of Christ. And like a slave, Tom would take no credit at all. As Jesus was preparing the disciples for the impact they would have on the world, he said this to them in Luke 17, verse 10. When you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. If and when any of us hears those words that we desire to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, the only proper response is, I am an unworthy slave. I have only done what I ought to have done. I know that for those who have been part of Hope Bible Church for a long time, and especially from the beginning, it's very difficult to separate Hope Bible Church from Tom Leake because the two have been inseparable for so long. Much like the teens who came out of Egypt, and for 40 years to be an Israelite was to have Moses as your leader, as your teacher, as your counselor, as your representative before the Lord. And so it is with those who've been part of this church for 24 years. It's right to grieve that separation. It's okay to struggle with that change. And for some of you, that struggle will last a long time, and that's okay. But as a church body, we need to remind ourselves time and time again that as much as we would have desired for Tom to stay and to be our pastor and to teach us God's Word, the chief shepherd, in his inscrutable wisdom, determined to continue to build his church according to his plans and not ours. The Lord Jesus Christ is the explanation for Hope Bible Church. It's His doing. And just as Pastor Tom humbly followed his master, so we must continue to do the same. Implication number two. Christ appoints leaders for His purposes. Christ appoints leaders for His purposes. You cannot look at Moses and Joshua and come to any conclusions about why God chose them. The Lord did not choose Moses to rescue Israel out of Egypt and lead the people for over 40 years because of Moses' strengths and experience. In fact, quite the opposite. The Lord chose Joshua as a military leader to lead the people and conquer the land. 
But Joshua was not chosen because of his military experience and accomplishments. We honestly have no clue why God chose Moses and why God chose Joshua. There was nothing about these men in particular that led God to choose them. That's just what the Lord did. The Lord used them despite themselves. In Ephesians 4, verses 11 and 12, it says, And He gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. The Lord doesn't choose men who are apostles or who are prophets or who are pastors. The Lord chooses sinners whom He saves, and then He gifts, and then He gives to the church to fulfill His purposes. Every man and woman is different. Every person has different gifts. There are no identical twins in God's kingdom. As we begin looking for a senior pastor, we are not looking for a clone of Tom Leake because a clone doesn't exist. Nor are we looking for someone who is as close to a clone as we can possibly get. What we would really like, if I can just put this out there, is someone who thinks and speaks and acts as much like Jesus Christ as we can possibly find. We'll be looking for a godly leader, a godly man who shares our theological and ministry uh, philosophy convictions and who wants to step into what the Lord has been doing here and lead us into greater conformity to Christ. Because of our understanding of Scripture, we know that Christ has already appointed our next senior pastor. That was determined and decided before the foundation of the world. Our job is to recognize who that man is using biblical criteria. But we must remember that Christ is the one who has already determined who that man is. And that man will be uniquely gifted and he'll be uniquely used according to Christ's plan for his church. Implication number three, we must walk closely with God. We must walk closely with God. What made Tom Leake such a good leader of this church is that for 24 years, his commitment was to move everyone toward a greater understanding of and obedience to the Word of God. Though a sinner like the rest of us, Tom was committed to walking closely with God, and he devoted his life to ensuring that Hope Bible Church is a word-driven church. Just as the Lord commanded Joshua, we too are told that the most important reality, the most important responsibility we have is to know and obey the Scripture. We're told in Psalm 1 that the blessed man meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. We're told in 1 Peter 2 that like newborn babes, we're to long for the pure spiritual milk of the Word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Pastors are commanded in 2 Timothy 4 to preach the Word because it is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The Great Commission is to make disciples, teaching them to obey everything that Christ has commanded. I mentioned at the beginning that I've seen a number of churches go through transitions like this, 
though admittedly under different circumstances. I find it shocking how many churches don't factor in the Word of God in the process. The Scripture, sad to say, doesn't have a step-by-step process, here's how you find your next pastor, but it does give us a host of truth and wisdom of what to look for in a pastor. The Scripture will be our guide in that process, but the Scripture must also be our guide every day for each one of us in our lives. You know, not having a senior pastor is no excuse to stop being the church. We are still a church. We have a plurality of qualified pastors and deacons. So with Scripture as our guide and the Spirit as our helper, we have everything we need to function fully as a church. (laughs) Pastor Leek was a pedal-to-the-metal kind of guy, and there's no reason for us to let up, pull over, and take a nap. Let's continue to walk closely with God and serve Him with all that we have. Implication number four. Finally, He is with us. He is with us. Lord said to Joshua, Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. The Lord your God is with you. The Lord makes that same promise to us After commissioning the disciples in what we call that great commission, Jesus said to them, I will, do you remember? I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Psalm 139 reminds us we can never find ourselves in a place where God is not. Whether we're in the heights of the heavens or in the depths of the sea or anywhere in between, God is always with us. In John 14, as Jesus prepared the disciples for His departure, He said, I'm leaving, but I'm not leaving you alone. I'm giving you the Holy Spirit. Better than Christ's physical presence next to us in the seat is the Spirit's presence always with us wherever we go. Change is hard. Getting used to new things is uncomfortable at best and sometimes even painful. But with the Lord at our side, we can be confident that He is working all things together for good, for the glory of His name and for our sanctification. Beloved, we don't know what the future holds, but we know that the Lord is with us, and that is enough. Whatever each day brings, let us be strong and courageous, because the Lord our God is with us. Let's pray. As we contemplate these truths, O Lord, we confess our own weaknesses, our own inadequacies, our uncertainties. In our human frailty, we have a tendency to not trust in You completely. And so as the man said to Jesus, as Pastor Lee preached in his last sermon, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, you are a God who is worthy to be worshipped, a God who is worthy to be believed and trusted. You are good and all that you do is good. And so as we embark 
on a new volume, as it were, in the life of the church, of this church. We thank you that you are with us, that we have nothing to fear, that we have you to turn to at every moment, that we can seek wisdom from you and from your word, that we can join our hearts and our hands together and work hard for Christ, knowing that he is building his church. So, Lord, be our shepherd, be our guide, be our comforter, be our helper so that Christ may be glorified in all things. It's in his name we pray, amen.